Anyway, we should start on that. We should start on, you know, why did you even write this book? What was the inspiration for it? You're obviously a mother yourself, right? So I'm assuming that might be... Yes, that definitely has something to do with it. <laughs> um, so yes, I'm a science journalist. And so I've always covered science and kind of answered questions using science. And then when I had kids, I started, I had a lot of questions <laughs> and not not very many answers that I could find that were satisfying. And so I started- Did you read the books, the watch the, the educational courses and things like that? I did. Yeah, I read a lot of parenting books, um, but I found a lot of them were kind of based on theory or conjecture and weren't always based on science and evidence. And so I actually, for a while, I, I wrote a parenting column for Slate in the US um, and I would use science to answer my parenting questions. And then- you know, I always wanted to write a book. I wasn't sure that I wanted to write a parenting book, though, because uh, parenting is, I mean, it, it's so hard, and I don't know what I'm doing half the time. And so I thought, you know, who am I to be writing a parenting book telling other parents what to do? But then, this was a couple of years ago, um, I just started getting very frustrated by the bad behavior I kept seeing um, mm. all around me among people in positions of political power. And that there was the Me Too movement. Um, there was just, I felt like a lot of the news was about people behaving badly. And I mm -hmm. started thinking about my kids and thinking, who are they going to become? And how do I make sure that they don't grow up to be jerks, essentially? Um, I don't know if I can say the, can I say the title of the book with the- Yeah, yeah we say anything okay. on the show, anything. Okay, <laughs> okay, well, I've done some radio interviews and they're like, don't say assholes. So um, yeah, I, I was basically thinking, how do I raise my kids not to be assholes? And I realized there wasn't a lot of advice on this. There wasn't a lot of like science-based <laughs> advice on how to do this. And, and it felt really important. And I started digging into the research and I realized, wow, there's actually a ton of research on- what parents can do to shape kids' character and values. And it, some of it was really surprising. And so that was like the moment where I was like, okay, this feels like a good moment for this book. And also there's just so much research that hasn't been translated to a lay audience that I thought this is this is my book. And so that's what wow. I wrote. <laughs> that is amazing. You know, it's funny that you mentioned how what the influence was partly due to was the movements, the social movements, and kind of like that dawning on you that there's something happening or has happened, right? Which has led to this point where we have a ton of assholes out there. <laughs> but 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 what specifically was it about those movements that, you know, what do you think it is that's kind of like bringing this out now? And do you think it's not always been that way? Or do you think that we actually are, like maybe we all, are assholes and we're just better at hiding it in different generations. Yeah, that's such a good question and I don't have I don't have a clear cut answer to that question, but I I do feel like at least, you know, at least this behavior has become more acceptable I think in recent years like to to like things that were once everyone knew they weren't okay to say out loud like Trump and others started saying out loud and normalizing mm -hmm. it and, you know, saying blatantly racist and sexist things that mm -hmm. maybe people were, maybe certainly some people were thinking in their heads, but would never have, you know, said it out loud and thought it was okay. And suddenly I just felt like it just became much more mainstream. And, yeah. and I know there's research suggesting that kids learn by example, especially from people in positions of power. There's research from the sixties that, that shows that, um, you know, kids will observe what adults do, what they say, and if it's if it's violent or you know bad, they pick up on that, and then they're more likely to behave in those ways. And so, mm -hmm. so this was this made me nervous because I was realizing, you know, my kids, I didn't have the TV on a lot when um, when these kind of bad things were happening, and but. I know that they were hearing about some of the stuff from their friends. I know too that there were surveys of teachers that were done soon after Trump had been elected, um, where teachers were saying, you know, we are hearing so much more 
hateful rhetoric in the schools, like kids yelling, build a wall in the cafeteria and saying just very, very, like basically using his, his language. Um, and that and doesn't so, mean the cafeteria wall was destroyed. It means they were talking about something. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> right. they were, they were talking about the wall between. US Unless there really was a destroyed cafeteria wall, in which case we're so sorry. <laughs> we hope you get right. it fixed soon. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but when you talk about hypersensitive, hypersensitivity, mm, I agree with you. I think it's something that we've kind of like, if you look at um, sensitivity to things that are basically traditionally, let's say, Christian um, values, uh, such as being conservative with your sex life, um, being uh, more conservative in your communication of the things that perhaps others, um, you know, might find sensitive such as criticisms or um, rudeness in general, just bluntness. I think our threshold for tact has kind of really kind of shrunk. And we see it in popular culture. So, and I, I kind of observed this when I was younger growing up, I kind of observed how women were showing a lot more skin in like, you know, music videos, right? It wasn't necessarily, because in the movies, there'd always be that sex scene, right? There'd usually always be like a sex scene and and that was kind of acceptable in the movies, but then they were like rated. So you couldn't really, or you weren't supposed to watch those unless you were a certain age. And then I realized that it was starting to kind of like really find its way in the back door through popular culture. There was this kind of obsession with skin and um, and sex. And I think, you know, it's just because we're hypersensitized and now porn is just an everyday life thing for most people, which is kind of really scary. Um, I was even reading, and I don't want to digress too much, but I was reading earlier about how the porn industry is in tandem with the sex trafficking industry, meaning the more we watch porn, the more we're actually indirectly fueling the sex trafficking industry. And people don't realize this. So there are some serious implications even beyond, you know, what kind of a person engaging with this culture and promoting this culture makes you. There's there's implications beyond that into like the kind of suffering it brings to the planet. So I highly agree with you um, on that particular point about hypersensitivity. <clears throat> so what's your background anyway? I mean, like, are you religious? Are you traditionally, you know, religious? No, no, I'm not. Um, I would say I'm agnostic or atheist. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, yeah, I was raised, my mom was Catholic, but my dad was pretty much atheist. So that was an interesting dynamic. <laughs> um, um, mm. And I did go to church as a kid. Um, but no, I, I'm not religious now. Um, but I certainly talk a lot about values with my kids that might you know, that are similar to the kinds of Christian values, I think that, that, um, you know, would be taught in Sunday school, you know, my kids don't go to Sunday school, but I, I feel like we try to have these very um, intentional conversations with our kids about the kinds of values that we want them to develop and, and think about that might be similar to the kinds of, you know, education they would get from mm -hmm. their from a religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, when it comes to, you know, what you've written about, what would you say are the major points that you make in the book so that people can understand more about where you're coming from? Right. Um, so my book, the way I kind of organize it, just to give this as, as background, is I really kind of tried to think about what are the traits that I think of as kind of being the antithesis of assholery? Like what are the types of things that we would want our kids to, what are the types of traits we would want our kids to have if they weren't going to grow up to be assholes. And so then, and I broke these down into like, like one of them is, you know, generosity and helpfulness. Um, and then I looked at the research on what we know about what shapes children's propensity for generosity and helpfulness. And then if there was clear science on what parents can do, then that's what I kind of focused on and recommended. Mm. And so one of the big things in the realm of generosity and helpfulness, which I feel like is is a really big part of not being an asshole is being like compassionate and helpful and generous. Um, one of the really clear findings there from the research is that 
talking to kids about feelings and allowing kids to have feelings, like even negative feelings, letting them be angry or sad or upset, which I think a lot of parents, that makes a lot of parents uncomfortable when their kids are upset and they kind of want to say, you know, don't be sad, you're overreacting, stop crying, all these kinds of things. But instead, letting our kids have those feelings, acknowledging them, validating them, and just having conversations about feelings is actually a really important foundation for the development of generosity and helpfulness. Um, And it might sound kind of counterintuitive, like why would that matter? And the thinking is, um, and and I can talk a little bit about the research too, but um, in order to be generous and helpful, a child has to, you know, be able to look at somebody else like a friend and recognize what they're feeling and recognize, oh, they, they look sad or they look hurt or they look scared. Um, and then think about what they could do to make that person feel better. And that's actually a really complex skill for kids. It's called theory of mind. Okay. Um, and it, it, it develops slowly, but what parents do can, can help to develop it more quickly. And so these conversations about feelings and allowing kids to experience them kind of give them this um, language and this comfort level with this world of emotions that helps them sort of go from recognizing other people's emotions to, you know, taking the step to helping people and making them feel better. Um, so it's really interesting. I mean, cause you wouldn't think like the most important thing to do if you want your kids to be generous is to let them be mad when they're mad. You know, it doesn't, quite compute. But if you think about the steps that it takes for somebody to become generous or helpful, having a uh, an understanding of emotions and a sort of fluidity around them is really important. Mm, okay. Yeah. And I, I think that, I think you're on the right on the nail on the head there. Uh, you know, this is really interesting turf because we can start talking about a number of things here, right? when it comes to the evolution of our civilization and how we've been able to kind of hold it together in a civilized way, right, without kind of breaking out into too much war and destroying ourselves. Hopefully that doesn't happen in the near future. But what we've done is we've had, and I was watching uh, one of the episodes of Joe Rogan, the uh, Joe Rogan experience with Brett Weinstein, who if you don't know of him, or if anyone's listening that doesn't know who Brett Weinstein is, he's an evolutionary biologist. And he studies, you know, kind of like how humans have developed and even animals as well, not just humans. But what's kind of helped us kind of survive all this time? What are the traits associated with that? And what are the behaviors that we've kind of taken on to facilitate that? And one of the really interesting points that he made, which is coming back to religion again, right? And I'm, I was baptized. I'm not practicing but I do have a genuine interest in it because I feel like there's a lot of value there that I don't yet fully understand. Um, one of the things that Joe and Brett discussed in that episode was confession. And Joe is convinced, or was at least at the time, I'm not sure if he's changed his mind, but he was convinced that religion is the same as cult. And so Brett was trying to explain to him, who, by the way, is not a practicing Christian either. And he was trying to explain to uh, Joe that, well, you can't call them the same thing because these religions are not malicious in their intent, at least, you know, objectively speaking, there is, there is corruption within religion, right? And I don't want to derail the conversation too much, but I'm getting to the point that um, the systems that existed where, like, so you go to confession and you tell a priest who had no vested interest in, you know, uh, anything other than your well-being. He wasn't able to get married. He wasn't able to make, you know, money through other means than the church. Um, he, his sole goal was the uh, success of the community. You'd go to him for confession and you would, you would tell him what you've done. So if you were cheating, for example, right, if there was infidelity going on in the community, you'd have to tell the pastor or the, the, the priest. And that, if the priest noticed that there was stuff going on in the community, he would pray, maybe like bring out the Bible, open up a verse and start talking about it. And the people in the congregation would be like, oh my God, God's talking to me. I got to get my shit together because if I don't, I'm going to hell. <laughs> right? So I think what you're t- touching on here is like, we need to be able to look at our role models and whether they're parents or whether they're friends or whether they're people in the community. And we need to be able to witness good behavior, behavior that's going to keep the community together and everyone in going in the direction of success, not cheating on each other, not 
messing each other up, you know, not like being a malicious, just basically not being a deviant or a tyrant, right? Because that keeps us on track with uh, surviving into the future. And this assholery that you're talking about that's happening at the highest levels of institutions, whether it's Hollywood or the government or the banks or the corporations, that's really a big problem. You're, you're dealing with a problem that could potentially derail us, which is why it's so important for us to kind of re, you know, find our way again, kind of track back a little bit. And I think you're, you're right on the ball. It starts with parenting. It really does start with parenting. And I don't know, I have my own, I have my own kind of opinions about why perhaps these people that this generation, you know, the kind of the Biden generation, the, the Weinstein generation, right? Whoever you want to pick is so off track and you, you know, there are bubbles of wealth and power where, you know, you just don't, it's happening with the younger generation too, the, the, the leaders of the tech giants. I'm pretty sure they're probably so disconnected from reality because of the bubbles of wealth and power that they have. Um, but I think generationally speaking, the baby boomer generation really went through a period of just privilege, I would say, because the war had ended and everything was being rebuilt again. And it was the, it was a time of, of, of excess. It was a time of just having a, f a lot of freedom, a lot of new privileges. And so I think we've forgotten a lot of the values that should have been persisted upon. And, uh, and, and when, so when you're coming back to this, it's almost like you're the solution. Your book is a solution to this by coming back to what's, principally correct which is values yeah i completely agree and you know thinking about what you were saying about the role of the uh, you know a priest recognizing that there's issues within the community and just and having a conversation or, or you know giving a sermon that's related to these values that is actually very similar to a, a lot of what i say in the book which is um we really need to be explicit with our kids about, you know, the expectations that we have, the values that we have, like, for instance, with, with the issue of bullying, a lot of parents kind of assume, okay, my kid knows what bullying is, they would never bully another child, I don't need to talk about it, I don't need to really explain it. Um, they, they already know better. But what the research shows is that there are actually a lot of kids who engage in bullying who who actually don't really recognize that what they're doing is so hurtful. Mm. And the take home from that is we as parents really should be sitting down with our kids and having these conversations about behavior, about values, about our expectations, about what what can hurt people that we might not realize can hurt people. Um, and just like bringing these conversations to the dinner table a lot more. And that also includes having conversations about topics that are awkward, but that are really important, like talking about race and talking about sexism and talking about pornography. These are topics that parents don't want to engage in with their kids. We think, oh, they're too innocent or, you know, that this is too awkward. I don't know how to talk about it. But if we don't talk to our kids about these really nuanced, complex, important topics, then they're going to be getting information from their friends or from the media that's not necessarily the lessons we want to be giving mm -hmm. them. And, and so we should be the ones having these conversations. And I so, think yeah. a lot of parents don't know how to talk about it yeah. uh, for real. Like I actually would struggle, to be honest with you, if I was a parent and I was trying to talk, talk to my kids about those subjects, you know, in a way that I feel would actually benefit not just them, but society in, in, in its whole. So what do you, how do you suggest getting around that? Because your book is about, right. Does it, does it go into that actually go dive into that particular subject? Hmm. Yes, it does. It ha so there's a chapter on talking to kids about race. There's a chapter on talking to kids about gender. There's a chapter on talking to kids about sex and pornography, because I agree, these are really difficult topics for parents to even know where to start. Like, what is the language you should use? How do you frame it? Um, so I do include suggestions in, in those chapters, but also... Um, there are so many books that you can buy that are very specific, like even children's books. If you are wondering, you know, how do I introduce the topic of race or racism to my kids? There are dozens, if not hundreds of actually wonderful books that you can read with your kids that kind of help to introduce them to the topic and then can maybe lead to a, a, 
a bigger conversation later, but at least those books give you kind of a framing that you can use or a language, you know, language to use. Um, so I, I always recommend like looking for good books, um, movies, TV shows, actually, I've been very pleasantly surprised by children's programming recently. There's a lot of diversity now within it. I mean, much more than there used to be when I was growing up. And there's a lot of um, just really promising ways of, of pushing against stereotypes um, that I'm seeing in TV shows. So that's another thing, you know, mm-hmm. you can, you can just be careful about what you're exposing your kids to in the types of media you're letting them watch and then having conversations about the things in those shows or in those books afterwards. Mm. So I'm going to put you a bit in the deep end here, right? <laughs> I'm going to ask you, how do you feel about the movement right now surrounding things like racism, gender uh, for kids specifically? Because, well, as adults, I think conceptually, we are in a much better position to, I think, see things for, uh, you know, I think we're able to see the implications a lot easier than, let's say, children because the, their brains haven't fully formed yet. And I'm wondering what what you your thoughts are on the education side of things and how what are we supposed to teach our kids about these without jumping into too much detail? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it does in a way depend on the issue, but I could, I could explain a little bit about race and, and talking to kids about race and what okay. the research light, uh, shed, what kind of light the research sheds on this. Um, so, you know, I know a lot of white parents in particular um, have this sort of well-meaning approach <laughs> called colorblind parenting, which is like the idea that maybe we just shouldn't talk about race. And if we don't talk about race with our kids, they won't see it. They won't notice it. They won't make a big deal out of it. Um, and this is, you know, really well-intentioned. I think it's how a lot of us were raised. That's how I was raised. But there's there's a problem with it, which is, first of all, kids, we know from research, kids do see skin color. They notice the differences um, and they notice it from a very young age. And that's that's fine. They just, they notice it. But then they also notice that there is this racial hierarchy that exists in our society. Like they see that people in positions of power and prestige and wealth are more likely to be white than to be of color. And this hierarchy, kids are like little detectives. They are, they are trying to figure out why the world looks the way they do, the way it does, um, what social categories matter. So they notice this hierarchy and they also see these differences in skin color that play into this hierarchy. And if they're not given an explanation, like if they're not told about like the history of racism shaping this hierarchy, then they sometimes will come to the conclusion that, well, maybe white people are just like better or smarter. Mm-hmm. So that's not a conclusion we want our kids to draw. So what the research suggests that we should do instead is to sort, and also kids notice that we don't talk about race. And so they notice that there's this hierarchy. They notice that race seems to matter in some way, but they notice that nobody wants to talk to them about it. And that also is like a, like a signal to them, like, this is, this is interesting. Like maybe talking about race is bad. Maybe race is bad. Maybe like, you know, mom and dad are scared of this topic. It's like something, it's something bad. And mm-hmm. so that's another thing that plays into it. And that's not what we want. So the idea then is to kind of normalize as much as you can. Like if your kid is in a grocery store and says like that lady's skin is so dark, instead of shaming, like shushing your kid and saying, don't, that's not nice. Don't say stuff like that. Which again, like, makes them think, oh, race is bad, talking about race. You, right. could, you can say like, yes, her skin is darker than ours. And you know what? Their skin com- comes in all different colors. And you can even mm-hmm. explain the science behind it. Like it's because of a chemical called melanin and some people have more than others. And it has to do with where your ancestors are from. And um, so like just instead of being really uptight when your kids want to talk about race, just like letting them, you know, saying, yeah, yeah, sure. There, there's differences in skin color and that's normal. And it's, and it's great. Um, And then, you know, also talking about racism and slavery and so that kids understand that, you know, this hierarchy that we see is a relic of and well, and is still driven by systemic issues um, that they can then, you know, fight against if they want. Like it also empowers them, I think, to think like, well, let's fight against this. Let's make things better. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's sort of the idea. Like you just kind of want to normalize the issue, not make it something taboo, not make kids scared of it. And then also help them understand, you know, why there is this hierarchy and that it's not because white people are smarter or better. Right. I think that's a good approach, especially the scientific kind of aspect of it, where maybe you dive into a little bit about that. That's a really good 
um, approach. I never really thought about it that much, but it does make sense um, because I, I, I am on the same page as you. And, I, you know, one of the things that really kind of riles me up, though, is and I don't talk about this a lot because I've had to think about it a lot and I didn't want to say anything before I did. But I think critical race theory being pushed on kids and adults as well. I think that can cause a big problem if I'm kind of looking at this from a, an objective standpoint as much as possible. I think it's really great, the strategy of kind of like teaching people, hey, we're different, but we're the same. You know, we're like, we're all humans, but we come in different shapes and sizes and flavors and things like that. But as soon as you start telling people they're inherently racist, I think that's a problem because we're dealing with, um, although there are relics, right, of the systemic racism, the racism that was put in place by our ancestors and maybe pervades through to certain individuals today. It doesn't mean that everyone's racist. Um, and I think it's going to backfire. I think that critical race theory may backfire because you're bringing it up in a very different way. It's a very aggressive, violent way to bring up the idea uh, of. Well, I don't know. I, I, I understand the teaching of the aspects that are being taught in schools is really, it's not necessarily saying everybody is inherently racist, but that racism, I mean, I think it's essentially what, what I was just explaining, explaining that, you know, racism has existed and it's, you know, been a big problem, but not, I, I don't understand it as everyone is, you know, born, everyone white or something is born racist. I, I don't think that's part of what they're teaching. Mm, I seem to have heard of and, read of experiences from individuals that have gone through courses at let's say coca-cola or big corporations where the idea is and it's based on um robin d'angelo and her mm -hmm. thoughts on critical race theory which i don't agree with um that you know if you're white today you are inherently racist to a certain degree and so these people are talking about how, and I haven't been through one, so I have to say that, like I haven't actually been through critical race theory class. So I'm just going off of my opinion on what others have said. And the idea is so far that it's being forced on people that they are racist to a certain degree. And I think the problem that I'm trying to highlight here is as long as the, as long as the solution is not concessionary, right? As long as the solution is only awareness that what we've discussed today is a truth, like people are different, you know, they come in all different shapes and sizes and forms, but we're all the same. I think that's a great solution to this problem. But as soon as it becomes concessionary, I have big problems with it. Like, for example, we need to give certain ethnic groups more equality, more freedom. We need to go out of our way to change the structure, the systems, the, the way that things work so that we can cater to those sensitivities. I think that starts to disrupt things in ways that we don't yet fully understand. And when you talk about things like defunding the police or, um, well, that's a really good example, actually. There's a problem with defunding the police where people think, okay, if we take money out of these systems, that it's going to make everything better. If we have much less police, it's going to make things better better. That's one way to look at defunding the police, although not everyone thinks of it that way. P people think we will reallocate funds to other, you know, other solutions for society, which may be a good idea. But taking police off the streets isn't a great idea either. I think training is where it needs to come in. So um, what, what I'm trying to say is I think there are very important conversations that need to happen around this topic. And I think before... I think before we I think before we start to program our kids, we have to have some more difficult discussions. I, I, don't, I don't think it's I don't think it's been satisfied yet, the need for us to get super clear on this subject. Um, so those are my thoughts on it. But I do agree with you on what you've said so far, which is that telling kids about the differences in a way that isn't concessionary and in a way that is very scientific is one of the ways out of this because then at least you're breaking the taboo and you're making it a lot more normalized don't avoid the subject 
and I'm half Chinese, right? So I, I have a, uh, I have mixed blood and I got bullied a little bit at school because of my eyes, right? They would kind of make these gestures and make fun of me. But luckily it wasn't too bad. And I never experienced any kind of systemic racism because I don't think, you know, like I was in the right category for that anyway, to begin with. Um, but growing up, I think it was really obvious to me that people didn't want to talk about these things, mm-hmm. right? So it did make it a lot more of a, it did make it a lot more sensitive to me. And I think that that affects the way you treat people. So anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. But how, how else do we stop our kids or avoid our kids turning into assholes when they're older? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, another big thing is sort of helping your kids resolve conflicts in a cooperative way. So I, I have a chapter on, for instance, sibling rivalry and sibling conflict, but this can really apply to any kids who are in conflict with their peers or, you know, whatnot. Um, I think so, uh, especially with sibling conflict, though, the advice used to be like, let kids kind of solve the problems on on their own, you know, they'll that'll help them figure out problem solving skills, it'll be great, you know, just leave them be if they fight, they'll figure it out. And then researchers actually started to watch what would happen when siblings would be left alone after a fight. And they found, well, actually, the more dominant kid, usually the older one, usually wins by coercion or physical force. And so that's not really teaching good problem solving skills. That's kind of teaching kids that, well, the best way to solve problems is through coercion or physical force. So then researchers, and there actually are researchers who study sibling relationships and sibling conflict. It's fascinating. Um, they, They now instead suggest that you kind of help kids problem solve in a cooperative way. That if you, that when two kids are fighting, or even when like a parent and a child are head to head on an issue, um, that it can be really helpful to sort of, you know, have each side air their own s- perspective and feelings on the issue and say, here's how I feel and what's important to me. And oh, well, here's how I feel and here- what's important to me. And then kind of brainstorm solutions to the problem together that are more cooperative. And researchers have actually taught parents how to kind of help mediate sibling conflict and then have, have you know, had parents do this over time. And those siblings will then naturally start to learn how to resolve conflicts more cooperatively over time. And so this is like a, this is an approach that I think parents can use in all sorts of areas of parenting, where just really thinking about conflict as, you know, uh, as something where you can mediate and you can figure out cooperatively a solution, you know, between parent and child or between two kids. Um, And that can help kids just become better problem solvers and better, like, they'll just get along better and and deal with conflict better in a more cooperative, constructive Mm way. Yeah. I think I'm not a parent, so I'm very aware of how I'm not entirely educated to speak about this, but from what I understand, and I have a brother and a sister, so I know about dynamics between siblings, but I, I, I get the, the need to have order in the household, like totally understand that 100%. And I think that that that's something that if I ever do have children one day, that will become (laughs) one of my major priorities (laughs) is like maintaining order in the household. Uh, From another perspective, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on is personality types and allowing our children to capitalize on their strengths because one angle i can see already just by looking at what you've said is let's say we have a an alpha child and a more submissive child um the alpha child and the submissive child aren't going to get along on everything it's just obvious right and so one of the mistakes we might make is to tell the alpha child that they need to be less of an alpha and tell the submissive child that they need to be more of an alpha, which I guess to a certain degree might actually be good advice, but we shouldn't be aiming to maybe like kind of strangle that out of them. If you know what I mean, maybe that's not the right word, but just kind of like extinguish it because I know that parents do this. I know that they put their kids on things like antidepressants or just, 
some medication to kind of control these emotions and this energy that, you know, maybe the more uh, ambitious outward kids, ex the extroverted kids have. And there's a great teacher by the name of Jason Wilson. Um, he is uh, an author as well. He wrote a book called Cry Like a Man. And he teaches young children martial arts. He's been on the Joe Rogan podcast recently. Um, and he's also been with Mel Robbins on her show recently. And it's fantastic what he does. It's absolutely mind-blowing how he capitalizes on the strengths of kids and also the fears too. So it's like both sides. It's like your strength and your fears. He's going to go right into them. And he does it with physical movement, martial arts, kids, male and female. Uh, but, but what he does is he shows kids it's all right to be themselves, but then they have to figure out, they have to accept it and they have to figure out how to use it. So let's say, for example, there's a child who is, um, you know, scared of being themselves. They're scared of expressing themselves. They're scared of what people will think. They're scared of what they might do. He brings it out of them and then he shows them how to control it. And I just find that so fascinating that I was, I was never shown that. And when I look at that now, his explanation is, listen, if you don't learn how to tame the lion, if you don't know what the lion feels like, if you don't, haven't played with it, you won't know how to control it. And if you don't know how to control it, that's how kids get into trouble. That's how boys get into trouble. That's how they go to drugs. That's how they go to gangs. That's how they, you know, get into prison. And um, I, I just thought it was so interesting to watch that and to, you know, recognize the worth of it. Yeah. And actually, that sounds, a that sounds not that different from the advice on that I was talking about earlier, like you need to let your kids have whatever feelings they have and not shame them for it. Like if they're afraid, if they're, if they're, if they're upset, if they're sad, I mean, especially with boys, our culture tends to shame boys for having feelings of fear or sadness. Like don't be being such a stop crying like a girl, you know, get yourself together, kind of that kind of shaming. But we really do need to let our kids have those feelings in order for them to learn how to manage them and understand them and control them. Like they can't get to the point of, of being able to, to deal with those feelings if they are shamed for having them and just try to bury them all the time. So we like have to let, let them experience it in order to understand and control it. And you're right. There is actually research that suggests that boys who have been um, shamed for, for their feelings and really not given an opportunity to experience them. Those are the boys who are more likely to commit crimes and get into trouble and, and even sexually assault women. They, there's all sorts of negative outcomes associated with that kind of, um, you know, taking ki from kids, the, the ability to just be themselves and, ex and experience what they experience. And, um, and how, so I, think, you, I think that's how have you dealt with the, or have you touched on the single parent uh, dilemma? Because I would imagine, you know, that is a huge pressure for someone. I mean, I've spoken to so many single mothers. I haven't spoken to single fathers that much because the fathers generally tend to be the ones who leave or get kicked out. But um, and that's a whole different subject, right? It's complicated. But uh, I haven't, looking at what you're talking about and what we're discussing today, it's a lot of pressure on one person to fulfill because you've got all those different energies, the masculine and the feminine coming into it. Um, it's, have you touched on that at all? I don't talk about that specifically in my book, but I completely agree that, I mean, being a single parent is so hard. <laughs> um, and I mean, it's just in so many ways, um, uh, you know, but but I don't think we have to treat, you know, I think, I think like a boy who grows up with just a mother is going to be okay. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to have, um, uh, like a boy does not have to have a father figure in his life to be okay. But, um, mm -hmm. but I think it is, I think it's just, I think it's just a lot harder. Yeah. So it is a tragic situation. Reasons. I mean, I, 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 I empathize, you know, 
that there's not much you can do with that. Um, but the, just thinking about it, like I, I remember doing the research, one quarter of households in the United States are single parent households and 80% are mothers, single mothers. Mm-hmm. It's a shocking statistic. That's an epidemic. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it was always that way. I didn't do the historical research. I would imagine it hasn't always been that way because we were very community driven before this period, uh, especially going back into history. That's how we survived. We, we, we needed to be uh, in good um, standing with the people around us. And so we, we needed to be, we needed to stick together basically. Couldn't leave the nest. But these days, wow, what an epidemic. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's hard though, because then you think, well, some of those families that that stayed together before that that now might be single parent family, those might have been very bad relationships too, though. Like maybe they stuck together, but there was abuse or something else that also wasn't going to be good for the family or for the children growing up. And so it's it's hard, you know, you can't just look at it on its own, but within this context of, I don't know. Maybe before, like I was, I had a, a lawyer uh, on a show early on, Jacqueline Harunian, great lawyer from New York. She's a divorce lawyer and she's been in the industry for a long time. And she told me that up until the mid 1980s, women weren't allowed in the United States. And I think specifically she was talking about New York were not allowed to own their own bank account. They had to have a co-signer, their uh, partner, their husband had to be co-signer. So they were literally locked into the relationship financially. You know, they could leave, but they wouldn't be able to, you know, take any of the money or have any of the money, right? If the, if the, if the husband didn't want that. So it was a, that was a really crazy fact to learn. And so I agree with you. I think historically there are many relationships that mm, were clearly tragic and didn't uh, didn't didn't lead to anything you know good. But um, but you know I, I I I hope that human nature is not such that we can't learn from this and we can't make better choices and we can't think about the future better before we start to dive into a relationship with someone and have children, especially because having kids, and this is one of Ben Shapiro's biggest arguments is that if you have kids outside of wedlock, everything that happens is, is basically on you. It's not on society. It's not on your upbringing. It's, it's your choice. So you take responsibility for that. And he argues that, you know, if we are able to bring ourselves back, and again, I'm not a religious person. I'm not. But I can try to empathize with him and see his point of view. If we're able to bring back a lot more of that, of those Christian values of family, of, wet, of being in wedlock, married, it's going to, in his opinion, cut out a lot of the problems we have with single uh, parents and having kids with single parents, which I personally think would do a lot for our society because, again, coming back, we're coming full circle now. So that whole problem about like what Mr. Jason Wilson's trying to accomplish with his teaching is he's taking the kids that predominantly come from these single parent uh, households, single mother households, where they don't have that father figure who can teach these things to them or should be the one teaching these things to them. So a really great point that you made there. Maybe there are people who shouldn't be in relationships, but I think we, we really need to try to figure out, well, if you're not supposed to be in a relationship, like how do you keep yourself from, (laughs) from making silly choices that lead to suffering down the line? Mm, Yeah. Well, and I think we need better access to, birth control. <laughs> I think that would help too. I don't live in the States, so I'm trying to, you know, is there a problem with access to birth control? Yes. I mean, it, it, it depends on a lot of factors. Certainly like I don't have trouble getting birth control, but I, um, you know, I have doctors who I, you know, see, I think it is, I think it is hard to get access to reliable birth control. Yes. And, and, you know, and 
to consistently have access. I think you can go into, if you have the means, you can go into a clinic and pick up a handful of condoms, but I don't know how easy it is to get, you know, the, the kind of birth control that you would need to really be able to consistently prevent pregnancy. I think it is a really big problem. I'm not, I'm not an expert on this, but this is mm. something that I have certainly heard and, and read. I lived in the Philippines for maybe eight years on and off. Um, and, and it's a very Catholic country. The institutions are very rooted in Catholic Catholic uh, Catholicism. So they're not progressive. Let's just say that. And there's an overpopulation problem, especially in the capital in Manila. And you have just so many homeless families with four, five, six kids or more, and they live on the street or they live, I even saw a, a family that lived on a, on a roundabout. We call them roundabout in the UK. You know, it's like the, that place that links yeah. the roads together. I was just so confused and upset by the whole thing. And I, I see the need to kind of roll out better access to family planning, right? Um, we are moving away from the traditional values of Christianity where you should not, or Catholicism, where you should not have sex before you marry. You should definitely not have children before you marry. And we're moving into uncharted territory where I personally think that a lot of the teachings from those religions and those books, which is why it's just not as popular anymore, don't apply or can't apply to the current day situation. And so this conversation that you and I are having is really experimental in many ways because we have never been here before. And I don't think the teachings from the past necessarily work that well. So we have to find a solution. Speaking of which, what do you think about parenting styles? Can you help me out with that? Like I know a lot of people listening might not understand what a parenting style is. Yes, yes, I do write about parenting styles in the book. So parenting style is essentially the emotional climate that parents create in the home. And it has to do with how you respond to your kids, interact with them, you know, engage with them on a daily basis, um, and what kind of re- what kind of relationship you have with them. And so um, there's I guess there's, there's four parenting styles, but three are really the most common. One is authoritarian parenting. And this is um, parents where there's a clear hierarchy, very strong hierarchy between parent and child where parents are in charge and they have very high expectations. They also, um, they don't, they're not always warm with their kids. They are the, they're kind of like the parents who they ask their kid to do something and the kid says, why do I have to do that? And they say, because I said so, um, you know, and they don't, they don't really negotiate with their kids. They, they just, they say, you do this, you're expected to do this. I'm in charge. You know, um, they also are much more likely to, to punish their kids. Um, and there's just like a, yeah, there's just a very, very strong hierarchy there. Then on the, on the sort of opposite side of the spectrum is, permissive parenting. There's also neglectful parenting. That's the one that I was, is the fourth. It's not very common, but that's like your, your parents really aren't, the parents really aren't around and aren't parenting very much, but permissive parenting is like, these parents are very involved in their kids' lives. They're definitely present, but there isn't that clear hierarchy. And in a way, the kids, they let their kids make a lot of the decisions. They, in a way, the kids are sometimes ruling the roost. Um, There's not a lot of boundaries and expectations. Then in the middle, and this is the parenting style that's really associated with the best outcomes in kids, is authoritative parenting. And this is parenting where there's still a a hierarchy. The parents are definitely in charge. The parents set expectations and and boundaries. Um, But there's a warmth there and there's a respect that you don't see in the authoritarian household where the parents are um, responsive to their kids in a way. Like if they're, if they ask their child to do something and the child says why they will actually explain why. And so they show the kids that respect and sometimes they will negotiate with their kids. Um, if the kid pushes back on something, you know, sometimes they'll say, no, you have to do this. Other times they'll say, okay, well, let's, let's talk about, you know, why this is, why you're, why you're finding this difficult. So there's just more of like a give and take. Uh-huh. There's it's more, more warmth, recognizing but, them as an actual human being with their exactly. own thoughts yep. and feelings. 
Yeah. And, the, and that authoritative parenting is really, I mean, it's amazing. The research shows that the kids raised this way are, they do the best in school. They're the kindest. They're, you know, the least likely to commit crimes. They are the happiest. They are the least likely to use drugs, like all sorts of positive outcomes associated with this style mm. of parenting. Nice. So you recommend authoritative. I personally think authoritative makes the most sense too. Um, in your experience, kind of meeting with people, talking about this, seeing families and their dynamics, what would you say is the most popular, at least from your perspective and where you are, what was the most popular parenting style right now? Well, um, I mean, speaking from my own experience and the parents I know, I would certainly say authoritative parenting is very popular. Um, permissive parenting, I think, has become more popular recently. Um, there's kind of this idea, I think, that uh, there's like a, a conflation here where some parents think that any kind of expectations or consequences with kids is dangerous. And so they kind of sometimes veer into permissive parenting where they just don't have any boundaries <laughs> um, or they or they really they're just so afraid of kind of being too harsh that they're just too lax. I think that I've seen that happen. There are certainly still some authoritarian families. Um, I mean, that is still, that, that still exists, but I would say that was more common 30, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, when, if you watch Mad Men, for instance, like those are authoritarian households where it's like, kids, you should be seen and not heard. And I expect this of you. And, you know, you must be on your best behavior at all times. Like that's very authoritarian, mm. but I think it's become less common in, in recent decades. Mm. Yes. My father has been an authoritative parent, authoritarian parent rather. And, uh, but not entirely. I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't always like that, but he did bring out the belt a few times. He did more than a few times, actually. So, mm. so you can see the kind of like he's an Asian from previous generations. So that's what you're essentially saying is back in back in those days, it was a lot more pop, popular and common to treat your kids with that authoritarian style. Um, you made an interesting point that you think there's more people now that are permissive than before. Why do you think that is like, cause I have my own thoughts and I'll share them in a moment, but like what's happening here is there, cause you're saying it's the most important to be an authoritative parent, right? Where That's you a, give, you, you maintain control of the household. You have very firm boundaries and very clear lines, but you're able to give some flexibility to the kids so that they don't feel like they're oppressed. But why do you think there's a kind of like a, 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 a not a resurgence, but like a, a popularity gaining around permissive parenting? Yeah. I mean, I have to say this is really my own anecdotal observations. I don't have, I don't know whether it's actually become more common, but I feel like I see it in, at least in, in the communities in which I have friends, I see it a bit more commonly. Um, and I think to some degree, I mean, I think it's very complex and I think it reflects a lot of cultural changes, but I also think we came from an era of a lot of authoritarian parenting. We, a lot of us who are now parents were raised by authoritarian parents. And so we kind of work, it's like the pendulum is swinging the opposite direction. Like we don't want to do that to our kids. And so we're becoming, we're erring on the side of being a little too permissive. I think that could be part of it, but I think there's much larger sort of cultural movements happening that this might be a part of, um, you know, there's like, starting in the 1980s too, there was this really big movement to make sure that kids had high self-esteem in the US. Like it became like this kind of obsession in the US. And I think that obsession with self-esteem also plays a role in this where we kind of think that the best thing to build our kids' self-esteem is to, you know, not criticize them and not punish them and not have too many um, you know, consequences for their behavior. Um, mm -hmm. That's a whole nother issue, the issue of self-esteem. And I talk about it in my book and kind of the, the misunderstandings that parents have surrounding self-esteem. But I think that could also be playing a role where we're sort of coddling our kids a little too much now in the hopes that this will build their self-esteem. But actually, I think it's not very good for their self-esteem. Yeah. Um, I think I remember what you're saying, actually, as a kid that was born in 1983, I, I grew up like developing during those years and in the UK where I was living and growing up, I would watch movies and shows from the U S and I, there was a very distinct difference culturally with how kids were behaving 
from where I came from and what I was seeing on, on the TV. And I know it's TV and I know it's a movie, so it's kind of an exaggerated form of reality. But there was this kind of messaging, which was like kids should be allowed to do what they want. And, they sh- you know, it's okay. It, they can get away with it. It's fine. And I always kind of found that really confusing because I didn't experience the same thing, but I wanted to. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. yeah. I wanted to have that freedom. Um, yeah. And uh, it must have been really confusing for kids growing up outside of the U.S. watching popular culture from the U.S. So, so that's an interesting point. But um, yeah, I, I mean, just and I don't want to, I don't mean to make things so political, but I think that it's just a really divisive time right now, and I'm trying my best to uh, bring to light some of the maybe truths, or at least from my perspective, the truths about what's going on, so we can get back to being together again and working uh, with each other. But I feel like uh, a lot of the permissive parenting comes as a result of fear of, of people not ostracizing us from society, but, it, you know, actually maybe in some cases, yes. I think, I think people are being, you know, cancel culture is a real thing. You know, it, it is a real thing and it's, it's kind of dangerous. You know, it's, a dangerous way of thinking um and i think we are very uh, on high alert uh and unfortunately making decisions based around you know whether we can avoid being cancelled or at least our reputation being um hurt by the choices we make in our personal lives and at home uh i'm a believer i'm not sure about your perspective on this but i'm a believer in being able to spank your child when the moment calls for it and from a place of calm, not from a place of anger or any kind of emotion. It has to be a place of calm because you need to be measured. Um, But there are moments, I believe, where you have to be that authoritative parent where you're going to discipline your child because they cannot be controlled any other way And it's not appropriate. Whereas I think the permissive mindset wouldn't do that and doesn't do that. And it unfortunately leads to what we've just discussed, which is kids maybe growing up, especially during those developmental years, right? Like, uh, what is it? Three to to five or something? I can't remember. But very early on, there's like this window of time where if Mm. we, you know, if we don't get our parenting right, it's going to have repercussions from that moment forward. I've never heard that, that there's like a critical period for parenting. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a, I mean, I, I'll find the reference for you, but I think it was Jordan Peterson that was talking about the, there is a critical window of developmental childhood where if we cannot instill values in our kids, they will grow up without that. They will grow up without that map and it will lead to like them getting into trouble or them not being able to empathize or, you know. Yeah. I can't say I've ever seen that in the research literature. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, sure. I'll, I'll have a look. I'll share it with you after this um, yeah. because it's super important. If it's true, if it's true, right. then that means that we need to be really careful about how we're parenting, especially during that time um, because it won't matter Apparently, according to that, it won't matter too much what happens after because the programming has already been put in place. That's interesting. Yeah, I have to say I'm skeptical of that because I I have seen a lot of research on kids who are older and seeing how parenting certainly shapes them. I, I have not seen anything suggesting that there's like a period where there's the most influence. It could be that this is, um, this is sort of extrapolated from research on, you know, how like the effects of a trauma on a child can be much worse when they're that age or something. But I haven't seen anything suggesting that parenting matters less outside of those years. I would be really interested to see if that's true, because that's really interesting. I mean, I don't know if I think maybe, maybe that's not the right way to look at it, because I don't think it matters less. I just think from what I've heard, what they're saying is it's, it's absolutely essential during that time. Like it doesn't make it less important to parent later, but it definitely is more important. If you know what I mean, it's like a different way to describe it. Um, But I will find that for you. And I think, have you ever, have you ever had the misfortune of knowing a clinically 
uh, diagnosed narcissist or sociopath or psychopath. Have you ever had that well, misfortune? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, it's hard to say because I, I think I have engaged with them before, but I don't know for sure that they have ha- had that diagnosis because it's not like they're going to necessarily tell me, right? Um, but I have certainly talked with people where I, and I am not a psychologist who could make that diagnosis, but I've thought, I wonder if perhaps they might have this condition. Yes. <laughs> but I don't know for sure because... I don't have right. Their, uh, medical yeah, history how in would front of they me? probably wouldn't tell you, and they probably wouldn't right. even believe it, uh, and they don't believe that they are in that way. But so this is really kind of the extreme of what I'm talking about. Is these? Uh, I believe that these issues manifest and cannot be reversed, or cannot easily be reversed. It's almost impossible to reverse them. And I didn't want to believe that when I first read about it. But the more research I did, and the work that I've done on this podcast, has led me to believe that there are certain individuals that unfortunately we just can't get through to it, it. It's like they've created this reality that where they are not wrong ever. And so really tough. And I've been around a few people like that. It is scary. Uh, and those people need constant uh, oversight and need to be kind of controlled in a certain way so that so as to not destroy themselves and also you know the groups of uh, people that they're part of it's a tricky subject what would you say would be the biggest lessons you've learned writing this book and have you changed your have you had to change your, your parenting as a result of that how old are your kids by the way um i have a 10 year old son and a seven year old daughter okay got it and yes, I mean, my, my parenting certainly has changed. Um, you know, I really have a lot more intentional conversations with my kids about both, you know, what I am experiencing um, in order to help them sort of understand. Like, I think I think every kind of conversation we have with our kids about both our own lives and about the world in general um, is an opportunity to share our values. And so I it sounds so silly, but really, like, I think one of the big themes of the book is talk to your kids more, like talk about things that are happening in the world and, and talk about your own life and what you're going through and, and, you know, what you're learning and growing from, um, and, and just talk about stuff that you might not think you need to, or should talk about with your kids. Um, and so I, I certainly do. Like I try to find opportunities to just have conversations about different issues with my kids because they're, I mean, they're old enough now, seven and 10, especially my 10 year olds, you know, he can, he can have conversations about a whole lot of things and, and grasp them. Um, and I think sometimes as parents, we just shy away too much from any kind of meaningful conversation with our kids. Um, and, and we shouldn't. So. Mm. It makes me wonder about Santa Claus and all of those little <laughs> magical myths that we get taught when we were a kid and the yeah. reasons behind it. But, you know, some of the most magical thought, the memories that I have are staying awake on Christmas Eve trying to hear the, the bells of the sleigh coming in. And, I mean, it's really it's really nice. It's a nice memory. And when you get told that it's not true, I mean, I got told it wasn't true when I was about maybe six or something. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, my heart wasn't broken, but it was kind of like, okay, well, what was the point in that? <laughs> what, what was yeah. the, I didn't really give it much thought, I think, but uh, it did kind of make me wonder what was the reason for all that. But I think it's nice to, I think it's nice to keep children's innocence. You need to be age appropriate and everything like that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And my kids certainly, you know, I didn't, tell them the truth about Santa Claus until they were all, you know, they, they actually came to the realization themselves. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that you have to like throw the world on their shoulders from a young age and talk to them about everything, but at the same time, there's a lot of things that I think we just don't engage with, with our kids that can be useful and instructive Mm -hmm. and constructive for them. Um, It's definitely a balance though, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is, I think most of the time we don't talk about it with them is because we feel uncomfortable. We feel Mm -hmm. awkward about it. Right. And that's so selfish when you think about it. I mean, put in some effort. Right. I mean, I'm not blaming anybody. And I'm thinking of myself when I say put in some effort. It's like I'm telling myself, just try harder. Uh, But yeah, talking about sex with my kids shouldn't be a difficult thing, but it, it, it does feel a bit awkward because of the conceptions that you have about sex, they don't have any conceptions about it. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. No, it's awkward because it's awkward for us. And we, Mm. 
have this, we have just so much weight that is associated with these topics that yeah, our kids, our kids don't. Um, yeah, it's true. I think, uh, and I just remembered this while we were talking, um, the Smiths, you know, Will Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith, Willow and Jaden, they're an interesting family. Uh, I think it was an interview maybe a year or two ago where Will mentioned that he wished he'd been more authoritative because he was too permissive. And he thinks that it had a negative impact on uh, on the kids. You know, they were given too much freedom to do the things that they, they wanted to do and they weren't guided as much. And I think it must have been really difficult too because he was always working, maybe he was always traveling, you know, and so was Jada. Um, but we're, we're talking about, I mean, you know, we're talking about a Hollywood family at the top of their game. So that the household's going to look so different to, let's say, our household. And, um, yeah, we just have to... I think we just have to keep learning, keep reading books like yours, keep educating <laughs> ourselves. Um, speaking of which, where can people find your book? They can find it in any bookstore. Um, I mean, it's it's on Amazon um, and it's in a lot of independent bookstores. There's also an audio book that you can get through Audible, which nice. I read. Um, and there's an ebook that you can get. Um, so it's really kind of wherever books are sold, you can find it, hopefully. <laughs> And how do people out. get in touch with you directly if they want to chat to you? So my website is probably the easiest way. I also have a newsletter, a parenting newsletter, where I answer parenting questions. Um, and you can sign up for that through my website, which is melindawennermoyer.com. Yeah, we're going to put yeah. that link in the description as well so that people can directly click it. Um, Thank you. But it's been fascinating talking to you. And we've had such a interesting, thorough I would say conversation about, you know, those points that we brought up and I'm really grateful for that. I don't get to do it with every guest, but I feel like, you know, we were able to do that. And so hopefully it brought value to people listening. I'm sure. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe today and you won't miss the next episode. We cover topics like recovering from infidelity, online dating, managing chronic anxiety, and so much more. We're on all the popular platforms, so take your pick and we'll see you soon.